Hello and welcome to another edition of Jaffa Cakes for Proust. Yes indeed, we are back. Having visited Jaffaville, we're going to be back in Jaffaville next year. But in the meantime, we're all here again. Tilt. Hello. Joining us this week is also Tyler. Hello. So we find ourselves having left Jaffaville, but not yet having left the whole, uh, what you might say, mixed bag that is Jaffaing the Beatles. I've got to be honest, I'm really looking forward to this because it's Christmas. It's your big Boxing Day night entertainment on BBC One. It's the Fab Four. Nothing can go wrong. (laughs) I'm just going to bring up the listings, actually, for that night. I am a little disappointed that I don't have that newfangled BBC Two that you hear Joan Bakewell and what have you going on about. I've only got old-fashioned 405 line BBC One, so I'm going to be watching this in black and white like everybody else. We've got Grandstand for most of the day. Then 6.15, it's your Boxing Day evening on BBC One. 6.15, Brigadoon. 7.30, Frost Over Christmas. 8.10, this is Petula Clark. 8.35, Magical Mystery Tour. And immediately after that is The Square Peg, starring Norman Wisdom. And we finish off the night Peter Ustinoff in a Christmas conversation. Well, it sounds like a pretty good lineup. It's just worth noticing here, I'm just looking at Rediffusion. Uh, on 6.35, Boxing Day on... Rediffusion 635, do not adjust your set. A happy Boxing Day and a preposterous new year. The Times listing has the listing of somebody called Denise Offie. <laughs> the Guardian, Eric Idle, and the Bonzo Dog Doodah Band. Good Boxing Day for Bonzo fans. Yeah, I think, in all honesty, I think I know which one my money's on when it comes to general entertainment value. And I haven't actually seen that do not adjust your set, but <laughs> I can still say with some degree of certainty that well up against magical mystery tour is waltz of the toreadors a film starring peter sellers and danny robin so i think there's maybe a faint sense of giving up itv are not going to compete against the beatles okay what's on two uh bbc two titty poo the mikado brought up to date in color then life in the animal world false faces question mark i guess maybe unless our conversations before this have been misleading me. I don't think any of us are going to heap praise on this show. I suppose like a lot of people, the first time I saw this was 2012, when it had an airing on BBC HD, if people remember that. And that was preceded, of course, by the Arena documentary. And I know that you've both seen that quite recently. Let's start with that before we rewind all the way back to 1967. So what were your thoughts on that documentary in particular from 2012? It was nice that they brought outtakes out and tried to put it in a little bit of context, but I found it made too many excuses for the film. There was a bit too much, oh, the 60s was an amazing time, and we were just telling the older generation things are changing. Yeah, I mean, there were some outtakes that they showed which were funnier than some of the actual content. There was a sequence with Ringo and Aunt Jessie. She's reading from a newspaper about the latest escapades of Ringo and, and the Beatles, and Ringo's kind of reacting as if it's other people. And then she says something like, you're as skint as armholes. <laughs> that was really good. I can't sort of work out why they cut that one out. I for thought she was said that he was in the Skinner's arms. That she was implying that he was down the boozer every night. <laughs> it might have been, I heard it as skint as armholes. And I'm sticking with that. Okay. Well, Skinner's arms, of course, that's uh, the Steptoes local. There's a crossover that should have happened. 
Well, let's start there because it is interesting that the first characters we meet are Richard B. Starkey. After we've had the whole Sergeant Pepper thing where they're taking on, supposed to, different personas, Ringo has been Billy Shears for all of one song. This is them kind of de-pepperized and de-beatalized in a way. Well, this was filmed virtually, what, two weeks? Or they began filming about two or three weeks after Brian Epstein had died. I'm wondering if there was still a certain amount of shell shock, particularly with regards to Lennon. And did you notice that it wasn't until probably a good halfway through the, the actual film that Lennon and, and Harrison, you barely saw them. It was very much Ringo and McCartney for the first half. There's no structure here. I've just finished watching it a couple of hours ago as we're recording this today, because I have to keep watching it to remind myself what happens in what order and why. And a lot of the time, the why is because... It's having to rewind. Like, what, sorry, why are they now being put through their paces by Victor Spinetti? And it turns out they're just, uh, they're just all brought into a room. He was free for an afternoon, or he was free for a day's yes. filming, and they, and they liked him, so they got him across. Essentially, it's a, a nice handful of songs, of music videos, before such things existed, uh, punctuated by a lot of self-indulgent and some reasonable improvised comedy, really. The thing I will say is that it's got a better heart than Help. One thing we complained about in Help was that the Beatles wandered through the thing being young, handsome and stoned, and seemed to be looking down upon everybody. Jeweler, you failed. This, and in the Arena documentary, Paul Gambaccini mentions how odd this is. The Beatles were cultural mission control, and they're on a sharabang with a bunch of old deers. And he said, certainly to the US, it's like, well, that's not what you're meant to be doing. And that's the thing that really fascinates me about this film is, it is 1967, they are the hippest people on earth. And this is what they do. And I don't think there is that much of a sense of sneering and putting people down. For all that they say, oh, well, the interviewees say, we're telling the older generation things have changed. This is the Beatles reporting the good news. It's not things have changed. It's just not your world anymore. It's just like, uh, things have changed and this is how we're doing things. So if you want to get some crates of ale in, (laughs) come along with us. Yeah, well, the thing is that in that documentary, I think it was Barry Miles, it is an often remarked, it's a statement of fact that 1967 or the Summer of Love only really affected a few hundred people on the King's Road in London, didn't it? And the rest of the country were pretty much still entrenched in a socially conservative mindset. And they probably weren't expecting, well, I'm sure they weren't expecting the Beatles film on on Boxing Day TV to turn out like this. But the Beatles seem to be at peace with some of that social conservatism. They're being Northern and English and working class for Boxing Day Telly with Nat Jackley and Ivor Cutler. This is the thing that fascinates me. It's like something inside them has come out that was not what the hip people might have expected. They've all remembered that they are from Liverpool. And even the incoherence, it is brown ale incoherence. It's not brown acid. The thing is that even for the Fab Four embracing all the different aspects of 1960s life and travelling the world and trying out funny substances and different religions and all that kind of thing, they're still the product of their upbringing. So they're still four lads from Liverpool. 
And this film is full of little bits and pieces of basically everything that they've grown up with. Yeah, in the, in the last podcast you did about Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, you said that the Pepper album was the most English album that they'd made up to that point. The whole concept of a mystery tour is totally English, or British at least. Yeah, there was no concessions made for the American audience, the potential American audience, who wouldn't know what a mystery tour was. It's such, like you say, it's such a, an English sort of parochial thing. You know, like you say, crates of beer on a sharabang, sing songs on the bus, strolls along coastal piers, that sort of thing. It was very British for that read, very English. I guess maybe we do have to talk about drugs a bit more because I believe, I've never taken LSD, I believe one of the effects it can have on your first few goes is to take one back to childhood and to relive certain experiences. So, of course, that comes out in The Beatles with Penny Land and Strawberry Fields. It's kind of unusual to have them singing about places in Liverpool, especially immediately after the Revolver era. The Revolver era is kind of their most, if you want to say it this way, London, swinging London album. This is the point at which the Beatles look their sharpest, hippest selves. In 66, the suits don't quite match, but they're all very sharp suits, often you know, wandering around in sunglasses, looking at the paperback writer promo film and the one for Rain. So that has that sense of them being on the cutting edge of youth culture and all that's hip and maybe, maybe in ways slightly sneering like they were in Help. And then in 67, there's this burst back of their childhoods. And of course, initially, the first few sessions for their planned 1967 album, there was some faint idea of it being a concept album about childhood. Not quite strict concept album, but there was definitely going to be more looking in and back. And even like When I'm 64. Yeah, well, A Day in the Life is the middle section with the McCartney section where he's talking about being a schoolboy, going up top to smoke. Yes. So that's one of the things that's happening in Magical Mystery Tour. And this could have been good. So we've got partially the Beatles are actually kind of a bit more nice this year, a bit more relaxed. They're now so hip, they can surround themselves with a bunch of middle-aged people and say, hey, we like these people and we like hanging out with them. It's not going to rub any cool points off us. But they've also got arrogant and thought, we can make our own film. The most damning credit in this film is director of photography Richard Starkey, MBE. The hell did, I know Ringo, right, he had some cameras, and of course they were all making little home movies. What does he know about being a director of photography for a film normal people, non-Beatle family members are supposed to be seeing? So the publicity for this in advance, because it's obviously a key plank of BBC's Christmas schedule, do people really know, I'm talking about like the, the general public at large, do they really know what to expect with this? I mean, I know that the publicity obviously makes it clear that this is a little piece of whimsy. This is not a concert from the Beatles or anything like that. But I'm still wondering if people were entirely sure what to expect upon tuning in. I don't think anybody knew what to expect. I don't think the Beatles knew what a bad film they'd made. It's not like Fallout from The Prisoner. I don't think it is this big psychedelic surprise. As a film, it's bad. Well, that had committed very few missteps or blunders, if you consider. Uh, I think the bigger than Jesus comment was around this time. 
and that was to have repercussions. There was obviously insulting Imelda Marcos, which didn't go down well. But apart from that, this was to be the first real critical drubbing. It's the first time the work is the disappointment. And if you think in 1967, if you think at the beginning of the year, they had Sergeant Pepper, they had All You Need Is Love a few months before this. There was a lot of quality product coming out. So you would expect, if you've been a fan of A Hard Day's Night and, and I suppose to a lesser degree help, they're both well-made films. The first film in particular, very, very strong. You'd probably sit down on Boxing Day night and expect something a little bit like that with some great songs. Generally, we've not talked too much about the songs as we've been looking at the Beatles because we're kind of looking at them more like a comedy troupe than a band. But I'm not disappointed with any of the songs. Gary, did you re-listen to some of the songs that I sent you? I did indeed, yes. I enjoyed them. I'm, I'm still never, for whatever reason, my brain is not wired in such a way that I can remember what songs are on what albums, not just for the Beatles, but for anyone. So that's just not going to happen. But as a nice little collection of tracks, it's, it's lovely. So I wouldn't have had any complaints about the songs themselves. I mean, they're actually far and away the best bit of the film. What did you think of the Walrus sequence? Mm, yeah. Mm, yeah. <laughs> I, liked, I, I, <laughs> I liked when I'm 64. <laughs> <laughs> when you saw it in 2012... Because I remember you saying that you'd, you'd been on Twitter, people had been tweeting about the documentary, and then you'd switched on and you'd missed most of the documentary, but you saw the actual film. And up to that point, I think you said that you obviously were aware of the major songs, but that really was the first, what would you call it, major Beatles bit of product that you'd seen up to that point? Is that right? Yeah. I'll say this for it, upon the first viewing. Obviously, when we watched it this time, you know, I was watching it, you know, Till and yourself, we're all watching it because we're going to be talking about it on this podcast. When I was watching it in 2012, I'm looking at it and I'm thinking, what is this? What? This doesn't make any sense. But having said that, I still stayed to the end. So it still had some sort of effect. It, it wasn't just a dull film which just made me disappear elsewhere. I, I do remember just having it on and just seeing it through. So I guess from that point of view, it sort of did its job. Was that because it was sort of your jaw was hanging open? or Well, a little bit, but also I was very slightly intrigued to see if everything was going to fall into place at some point. Because I'm thinking, this doesn't really seem to be making a lot of sense. It all seems to be quite disjointed. Oh, hang on, I recognise that person there. Oh, it's Cyber Cutler. Now, okay, I recognise these songs, and I'm sort of thinking at some point, maybe it's all just going to fall into place because it's the Beatles after all. And of course, I didn't know because of course I hadn't seen the, the documentary. I didn't know that the Beatles are basically running the show. So I'm sort of thinking also, you know, who, who are the credits going to be? Who's the director going to be and what have you before realizing then what's actually going on. And I wonder if perhaps that would have been going through a lot of people's minds when they were watching this at first in, in 67, because as you say about it being their sort of first big misstep, well, if everything that they've, touched has turned to gold previously in the last five years then I could imagine people watching this and thinking well I'm a bit bemused but presumably it's all going to turn out successfully because you know it's the Beatles they know what they're doing you're going to have a lot of dads mainly dads sitting at home on boxing day evening with the kids sat in front watching the tv 
a lot of dads being baffled, cheesed off, probably. Some of them will have clammy palms, some of them will be harumphing. And there's a bit towards the end, in particular, that I can imagine a lot of newspapers being raised in front of faces <laughs> and a lot of huffing and puffing. I wouldn't call it a family film, would you? No, I wouldn't say so, no. You you could probably argue, actually, that this is exactly what the creeping watershed was made for because you know any time anybody rang up open air back in the day to complain about something outrageous being on television before nine o'clock the controller of the channel or whoever it was that was defending it would always point out that the watershed is a gradual process so programs get more and more and more adult themed as the evening gets on even before nine o'clock and then after nine o'clock, it's not just suddenly, right, we put out, you know, 18 rated films. It's still a gradual process after that. This going out at half past eight or 8.35 and the sequence you're talking about with the dancer and what have you at the far end of the film, that's you know, a good bit after nine o'clock. So in a way, it straddles that watershed perfectly. Now, somebody might actually tweet us at this point and tell us that the watershed at 9pm hadn't been invented in 1967. I don't know. I'll, I'll actually, I'll go over to chock block in a second and have a look at that whilst you're whilst you're chatting but there are instances for example let it be we've discovered actually it's bbc tv premiere was at 5 to 11 on boxing day morning in i think 75 and i think was it the same tilt for yellow submarine did that go out in the morning as well was that daytime premiere oh i don't know sorry i was busy looking because i was looking at the guardian's review of magical mystery tour uh, which appeared on december 27th and it starts off saying, where were the Beatles going? One has to give the pompous answer into their own half-grasped feelings. But then later on, uh, the reviewer says, Before the Beatles, I saw Benny Hill, Petula Clark, and an astringent moment of David Frost. Their professionalism made me feel that Boxing Day had come none too soon. But the poetry beyond professionalism of the Beatles was better than this. It redeemed, in retrospect, days of shallow rubbish and black thoughts of show business. Oh, interesting. So highfalutin, but generally positive. And the time seems to be a bit unwilling to commit. This was a program to experience rather than to understand. I was unfortunate. I lacked the necessary key. Probably this was an attempt at a fantasy of wish fulfillment decorated with youthful, fashionable ideas, psychedelic in scare quotes and misspelled designs, and the coarsely grainy photography, which not very long ago was a sign of spontaneity and originality. This thing looks horrible. I'm going to say that. The one thing that documentaries are saying, well, of course, you know, it was shown in black and white and it's meant to be in colour. It's not that much in colour. <laughs> It looks like an episode of The Sweeney. I was going to ask exactly that point because we have the, the advantage of presumably every time that we've seen this, we've seen a colour HD print of this. So how much is going out four or five lines in black and white? How much is that working against it? Because if you say the word psychedelia to anybody, then one of the first things that's going to pop into people's mind is going to be an explosion of colour, for example. Yeah, I said before we started recording that the flying sequence where they're, they're on the bus and Derek Royal says, if you look to your left, you'll see nothing at all. But if you look to your right, and then there's a, a montage of outtakes from Dr. Strangelove, I believe, but in lots of you know bright yellows and pinks and greens and blues. Obviously, the Boxing Day audience would have just seen very grainy black and white images of, I don't know, what was it, quarries or something like that? 
I mean, yes, I was watching this restored HD print. It still looks terrible to me. Even allowing for the fact that it's shot on 16 mil, and I don't know why it's shot on 16 mil. I suppose maybe there's that feeling it's easy to have handheld cameras you can get in and out more. Was it to give the impression that it was a, a home movie? It's very kind of you to think that there <laughs> might have been that level of planning. But it's not very well lit. There's too much dependence on natural light. And also, of course, chunks of it are shot in an aircraft hangar. And some of the outside scenes are in abandoned airfields. So you just got all this stained concrete everywhere. I think there are little bits that would have looked a heck of a lot nicer if they'd just gone to an actual place. Like when they watch Blue Jay Way, there's this thing of them going inside a tent and there's just the screen. I mean, if they'd just gone inside something that looked like an old cinema, okay, we can still have it inside the tent. Inside this tent is an old cinema. Well, hey, when there's the stripper, why not somewhere that actually looks like a strip club? Yeah, it wasn't as if they didn't have two shillings to rub together, was it? It wasn't as if they were constrained by a budget. Surely if they'd wanted to, they could have had much higher production values just by putting their hands in the pockets. They're the Beatles. Gary, do you remember that time we watched a little of What You Fancy? Yes. And a lot of that was lit. It would appear to be a bit, a little bit on the fly. But that's 35 mil. But... Even something like that, even if the Beatles just like got a list of theatres that aren't used very much, where we can barrel up and say, can we spend a week in this place doing some shots? Even that would have worked, would have given it a bit of an advantage, a bit of an edge. But this is it's an odd, washed out thing. Um, I gather that the Blu-ray uses a bit too much noise removal as well. The Blu-ray was a disappointment, actually. The best lit scenes i think i would say with the scenes on the bus all the exterior shots and and like you say some of the like for example um the um sequence with your mother should know does just look really amateur the bus scenes were the best shot really gary have you seen the original script which is a piece of paper with a circle on it and lines dividing up the circle and little notes jotted in that's a test card isn't it <laughs> so that's pm5444 <laughs> Is that what makes it all make sense? If I'd looked at the script, would it all suddenly, ah, I get it. <laughs> Eureka moment. There's some faint idea of what they're doing ahead of time, but there's a little bit too much. Let's just roll up and have a look around and then we'll write something in the circle and we'll do that. Well, I mean, the, the thing that stuck in my mind, I think probably the only bit that particularly stuck in my mind from having seen it in 2012 was that business about Lennon shoveling spaghetti on the table. I didn't know until you told me this business about how apparently you'd had this as a dream and told McCartney about it. And McCartney said, we'll do that then. Gary, you've worked in the small end of media. The thin end of the wedge. And there always comes a point where somebody, it might be you, it might be somebody else, does get this idea. It's like, let's just turn the equipment on <laughs> and do something. And it will be great. Does it ever work? Right. I'm not going to say this person's name. But I've got experience of having seen the end result when somebody does exactly that. Once we're going through a load of tapes in the, uh, the student TV office, and there was a particular guy there, wouldn't mention his name, but this, this is the same guy who once said in the meeting, I was thinking of doing this documentary about like the effects of drugs 
And and what it'd be like if you were to like, you know, like like take them and, and what effect it would have. And eventually somebody said, This is you just proposing to take a load of drugs and then record <laughs> yourself on them. But we found this tape and this guy basically he's positioned the camera so that it's on a table and it's facing the ceiling. And then the guy looks down on the camera and then moves his face slowly towards the camera until eventually the lens is in his mouth. And then he, he lifts his head back up again very slowly and then goes back down again. And he keeps on doing that for about sort of five minutes or so. And about six of us were watching this. Presumably he'd forgotten this thing was on the tape and just left it lying around. And we're looking at this and we're thinking, okay, presumably this made some sort of sense to him in terms of how this was going to fit into some sort of overall structure. But none of us could figure it out. And I, I doubt, to be honest, if we'd asked him, I don't think that he could have explained it either. And was that better or worse than Magical Mystery Tour? <laughs> no, I'm actually going to give Magical Mystery Tour the nod over that. No, that was, that was better. <laughs> well, let's face it. We're in the worst medium for this kind of thing as well. Podcasts really suffer from this. I mean, we might be guilty of this. I'd like to think we're not. This show is edited and it is work. we do work off notes. Sometimes you think, hey, this could be interesting. There's a podcast about a thing that interests me. You download it. And it's clearly somebody who just, they have a lot of conversations and they think, you know, we're really cute and funny. We should just record this and put it out there and people will enjoy it. It's that thing of me and my mate are really funny in the pub. So let's record it and then everyone can enjoy it. I do have a sort of grudging admiration for the the brass neck that this, this particular guy had to do this. I spotted, I think it was on YouTube a little while ago, somebody who had uploaded what he called audio commentary on the Steptoe and Son films. And I'm thinking, oh, well, this could be interesting. Presumably this guy's got some sort of connection to the film or something like that. Maybe this is some something from the DVD, I don't know. Turned out to be just like some bloke, some random guy. And he says, yeah, so uh, I could be watching the Steptoe and Son film. So uh, if you want to hit the play button, you can watch it with me. Oh yes, yeah, yeah, that, yeah, that's yeah. I like that bit. Yeah, that's a good line. Uh, that's it. Hour and a half of that. So watch the film and listen to some guy who you don't know pass comment on it. <laughs> now, I definitely think that we are better than that. But yes, I, I know what you mean. Sometimes people can have ideas and they think, well, what would it be like if? The, the thing is, okay. Now Charlie Brooker did quite a good sort of takedown of this nonsense a few years ago because he was talking about kind of people who say oh yeah, like clangers and what have you, oh, they must have been pure stone when they were making that. And as Brooker pointed out, no, they wouldn't have been because they're magical little works of art and very, very well crafted and structured and filmed and put together. And if they were stoned, then it would just be a big heap of dung that would never have got off the cutting room floor. In this case, you can't help but think that what the Beatles needed here, and who the hell am I or any of us to critique the Beatles? For God's sake, this is ridiculous. But... Nevertheless, it's magical mystery tour. You're allowed to. It's fair to say that they are outside of their comfort zone here. And as we're watching this, I'm doing the recasting business in mind, but I'm not only recasting as far as on screen is concerned. I'm also thinking about directors and producers as well. Part of me was thinking, and I think you'll appreciate this, Tyler. I was thinking, what would it have been like if they had had Spike Milligan involved in this in some way? What if he was a driving force behind this, if he was in charge of the, the creative side of things, effectively, the, the overall storyline? 
Well, Sellers as well. Both Sellers and Milligan together. I can imagine Sellers really... I'm not really sure which particular part he would play visually, but I can imagine... Hell's Teeth could play multiple parts, of course. But the anarchic spirit of Milligan, coupled with the fact that he also understands about structure and the fact that even the loosest possible way it has to have a beginning, a middle, and an end, and has to keep the audience engaged throughout, I think that that would have been a nice aspect to it had that been the case he wouldn't have allowed them to the the marathon sequence seemed to go on forever and the bus Ringo driving the bus around in circles that just seemed to go on forever I don't think Milligan would have or Sellers you know someone with a bit of like I say with a um, bit of discipline and a head for structure would have just vetoed that got rid of that and even the things like there was just some absurd sequences the Ivor Cutler dream sequence where he's walking hand in hand with Aunt Jessie on a beach. At one point he starts yelling, I love you, I love you, and and starts sort of pouring at her, if you know what I mean. He's kind of grabbing her face and just sequences like that that are not amusing, they're not surreal, they're just absurd. And I think someone like Milligan would have tightened that up or or, or, it it would have been funnier. What if they'd somehow crossed paths with the pre-Pythons? I mean, even if they'd ended up with somebody like Took and Feldman on hand. Just somebody to come in and say, right, maybe even do it similarly loosely. So, right, for this one, we're just going to run around a field. And it's, okay, but this is something funny somebody could say. This is something absurd. This Here's a nice visual gag for you. It just needs gags. They've overestimated how natural they are at comedy. It's very interesting at the beginning that Ringo is trying to improvise a backstory. He's talking about, oh, since Uncle Jack died. (laughs) And there are a couple of moments when he's actually trying to get the story going. The other three don't seem to be interested. And of course, the other thing is, this doesn't have any big shifts in the story. Obviously, the idea is, right, a bunch of normal people get on a coach tour and it turns magical. But at no point is it more magical than it was at the beginning. The magic is beginning to work. Isn't that one of the narrative lines? What? What's happening? Well, they all get into a tent like a TARDIS, don't they? That's about it, really. Oh, there's magicians, of course, isn't there? There's very camp, slightly dubious magicians. John Lennon being Paul O'Grady. Yeah, Mal Evans. There's a nice little bit. There's that bit where it's like, what now? A song. Mal Evans starts singing. They stop him. Okay. But obviously thinking, right, so we're going to get the next Beatles song. <laughs> it's Ringo drunkenly singing, I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts. <laughs> it's a nice playing with expectations, but because everything else here is so shabby, were they actually playing with expectations there? I know you've got, you've obviously got people like Victor Spinetti making occasional little appearances on it and what have you, not Jackley as well. But I think that this does expose the need to have actors and you've got in both hard days night and in help you've got the support of proper actors and comic actors and this is what this film needs it's all very well saying i know this business about how okay it's largely ringo and paul and john and george aren't particularly interested in being front and center or playing any particular role or what have you but again they're not actors and they shouldn't really be put in a position where they're being asked to act. And what it needs, ideally, is a nice little cast of faces. You want you know, Terry Scott in there, or Denise Coffey, 
people who can get across okay i was gonna say get across the plot and script and then realize of course there isn't one so what good would that do anyway (laughs) well it's the thing they are surrounded by professionals but they don't use them for anything apparently net jackley was really disappointed when he turned up and there was no script it was a letdown to him all the talent they need is lacking behind the scenes I've got a phrase here, and I think this is maybe kind of what they were going for, and this so much didn't happen, but a psychedelic carry-on. I think that is partially what they're aiming for here. They are trying to marry the radically changing world with the world that they grew up in, and it hasn't happened, but that would have been wonderful. This could have been a big triumph for them. I mean, you look at how yeah badly photographed your mother should know. That should be a bit that you know all the mums and dads can get behind. I know John complained about Paul's granny pleasing tendencies. What the hell's wrong with pleasing grannies? The Beatles get it. All you need is love. Everybody, love is for everybody, not just the beautiful people. And you have that. I don't know what the women in uniform are. I don't know if they're military or some kind of emergency service. But there's this bit where they just all walk past. I don't know if the Beatles salute them, but they're not being mocked. If there's any sense that these uniform ladies are being made fun of, they're definitely invited to be in on it. And you've got all the ballroom dancers in their fluffy dresses, all that old cum dancing stuff. If that had been a really well-staged number and had come at the end of an oddball thing that still had plenty of gags. The one sequence that stood out for me was the bit on the bus with John Lennon and little Nicola and he's got her on his knee and he's got the balloon and he's displaying a a really quite a natural way with you know a four-year-old which if you know anything about John Lennon it's not something that he displayed in real life certainly not towards his first child anyway but he seemed very natural and she seemed genuinely enchanted by him and it was just a very nice little vignette if you like George sat there contributing nothing really, but it was, uh, for me, it was one of the most enjoyable parts of the film. So that's the whole thing at the heart of it. They're being nice. And yeah, 67 John seems to be the, the nicest John. He hasn't started lashing out again. He seems to have got his head into a reasonably good space. Even when he's pulling faces during Your Mother Should Know, I don't think he's being that nasty. He's just hamming it up. He seems to be engaged. I know we don't see him do as much stuff as Paul and Ringo, but he seems to have some sort of engagement with the material. When he's reacting at uh, the courier, Jolly Jack something. (laughs) It's all fading from my memory. Jolly Jack Johnson, yeah. When they bring out the starlet and he picks up the girl, and John's pulling these four faces. (laughs) So he's definitely engaged in this. There's only George who does it. Well, even then, George brings on um, Blue Jay Way. Does George speak at all in the film? I don't think he does. John seems genuinely caught up in the whole sort of spirit of the thing when he's doing the spaghetti shuffling scene. And when he and uh, George go into the strip club, he seems genuinely engaged. Even your mother should know at the end, he seems happy. Okay, but now, now, chaps, you you know much more about the Beatles than I do because this entire Jaffa, the Beatles season has been my sort of introduction to the Fab Four, apart from obviously having heard the songs on radio over the years so i want to run some imdb trivia 
past you both and see if we can debunk this or confirm its authenticity. So on IMDb for Magical Mystery Tour, first of all, we have after its Boxing Day premiere, Ringo Starr apparently rang up the BBC complaining that the poor ratings were due to their showing this colourful film, quotation, in black and white on BBC One. The BBC responded by transmitting it again, this time in colour, a few days later on BBC Two. It's still bombed. Well, we know that they certainly showed it on BBC Two on the 5th of January. So that that much is absolutely true. And in colour, of course. We can't check any double-issue radio times to see if it was already in there because there weren't any double-issue radio times until 69, I think I'm right in saying. So we can't actually see a single block of programming that says that when it was scheduled on Boxing Day, it was already scheduled to be on the 5th of January. But I am somewhat dubious about that because for a start, certainly this time, you didn't really tend to get particularly reliable overnight ratings. The ratings would have come in quite some considerable time later. Possibly even as late as the point where the screening on BBC Two had already been scheduled and published in the Radio Times. Allow me to read the Radio Times, volume 177, issue 2303. Yeah, it's in there, 9.55. So given the lead in times, given that the first date in this issue, because January 5th is actually the last day of this particular issue, and the first date is... December the 30th. This is probably going to be going on sale around about the 26th. Right. Okay. So There's no way that's a last minute substitution. Not the leading times to make a magazine like this. Uh, it, it seems natural that if they took delivery of a colour film that was exclusive to the BBC for a time in 67, they're going to look at repeating it on BBC2 anyway. Because... Right, by December, I think the colour coverage should be national for BBC Two. This is why the Wimbledon thing is more talked of as... It's talked of as the first colour transformation, but there is a slight sense that it's something of a test, and it's not, I think, until the autumn that the Radio Times now says BBC Two is now in colour because it is pretty much in colour everywhere it needs to be. So it seems fairly obvious that if they took a colour film, they said, well, we put in a repeat there, we can use another excuse to nudge the licence fee payers. Buy a more expensive licence. You can see all the colours on Paul's tank top. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I think we can debunk that. I mean, it's quite possible that Ringo Starr did actually complain to the BBC and say, oh, you shouldn't be showing this wonderful colour film in black and white. That, that, that seems fair enough. But BBC showing on BBC Two, we're saying, is not a response to that complaint so that's fair enough okay trivia note number two there was a rough shooting script written before filming began about 70 percent of the bus exchanges are improvised but everything filmed outside the bus was performed more or less as written well it doesn't look it (laughs) (laughs) yeah written nobody really says anything outside the bus there's no dialogue scenes so when they say performed as written, the writing is just Ivor Cutler and Jesse smooch on a beach. You've got Victor Spinetti doing that non-lexical shouting. Yeah, but he could do that in his sleep. Was that, because I've not seen it, but it was on the documentary that he was performing. It, it was the same character he'd done, he'd performed in um, How I Won the War. Was, was that the same character was that it's been a long time since i saw how i won the war but it's one of victor spinetti's things he even does it in paul merton the series at one point okay trivia note number three 
The film was never broadcast by the US networks. ABC cancelled plans to show it during Easter weekend 1968 once the reviews were in. I believe that's true. The film had its first US presentation in 1968 at the Fillmore East in New York City. On Sunday the 11th of August, shown at 8 and 10pm, as part of a fundraiser for the Liberation News Service. It was not seen commercially in theatres until 1974, when New Line Cinema acquired rights for limited theatrical and non-theatrical distribution. First played on American television in 1987. What would they have made of it, do you think, the American audience in 1967? I mean, it was incomprehensible. Parts of it were incomprehensible. Much of it was incomprehensible to a, a domestic audience. How would an American audience have Yeah, the bits it, that think? are comprehensible to the British audience <laughs> are probably the most... The, there might be a slight more benefit of the doubt, thinking, well, obviously it means something here. But that's possibly part of the problem in the UK, is we know what you're up to, and it stinks. <laughs> Get your hair cut. Yeah. <laughs> They'd have probably thought that it was the Beatles being very clever and very uh, arch. <laughs> okay, item number four. The Monkeys' own Davy Jones watched the premiere with his family during a visit home to the UK during the Christmas holidays. While his family found the movie strange and confusing, Jones enjoyed its surreal qualities. Now I hadn't thought about that. That's another thing. The Beatles would look a little bit behind the Monkeys, wouldn't they? That's the other thing. So taking the psychedelic movement into the living rooms has kind of been done by the Monkeys. Is this a reaction to the monkeys? The Beatles realise that they've kind of been got out on their own turf? Yeah, but you two have seen the monkeys much more recently than I have. But my memory of the monkeys TV show, there was very much a beginning, a middle and an end. Yes, but there are little jokes. They are getting the counterculture into this show. Even bits where you you have the fast cutting, you have bizarre captions you have bits where there's just an odd little cut and then we cut back to mickey and just goes that's a trip or uh are you the high llama no i'm the regular llama the uh, high llama's out back sleeping you don't mean yeah that's how he got his name (laughs) (laughs) the beatles watched the monkeys or certainly john said he'd watched the monkeys when he met mike and said i like your shows so there's a little bit there that they've actually lost some ground. While they've been out at the movies, television, right into the living rooms, has been surrendered to the US. The monkey started, I think it started the end of 66 in the UK, certainly by the end of 67. It's been on TV, but the monkeys had spent time being put through their paces by James Frawley on how to improvise. I mean, obviously, they've partially been cast as actors, or when you say two actors, two musicians, but they've rehearsed and rehearsed. They've worked out how to roll with an idea, and if you do get a really great idea, how to structure it. And the Beatles, nobody's told them, stop. Brian Epstein was still around for the early planning of this film. Had he lived, do you think at some point he would have just grabbed them by the collar and said, stop? Think about what you're doing. Well, if he didn't even want the Beatles cartoon going out in the UK, then what an effort he have made of this. But he was enthusiastic about this thing where we're going to make a film ourselves and we're not going to be told what to do. We're not going to be extras in our own film. Even if he'd gone away on holiday, 
for the whole entire duration of the, the shooting of the film and the editing process. And he got back and he saw the finished product. Do you think he'd have let it go out on BBC One? I don't think he would have. No, again, he would have had the sense to have called and said, look, I think maybe you need to show this on BBC Two. The final and my favourite piece of IMDb trivia. The film appeared on the American Disney Channel during the 1990s. The strip club scene was edited out. Couldn't he have at least put some outtakes? I haven't been able to see any of the deleted scenes. But I believe there are deleted scenes on the Blu-ray. Have you read the booklet, Tyler? Not the booklet. I've read other stuff. Because the booklet has things in a different order. I think the race comes after the strip club. And there's a whole thing about Nat Jackley is dreaming that he's doing a Spanish dance with some girls on the beach. Yeah, there's a couple of cutscenes. There's there's that one, which is just boring, really. It's about four or five minutes of him encountering different girls on a beachfront. Oh, okay. I was reading the booklet and I thought, oh, was this shot? So it was shot and it wasn't good. But there's also, there was a, a scene with Ivor Cutler in the middle of a field at an organ, like a big white organ. Isn't he just going, I'm sitting in a field? He's, I'm going I'm going in a field. I'm going to lie down in a field. And I, that was really good. That's what I said earlier. The, the scenes like that should have been in the film. And scenes like the, the marathon or the bus being driven at speed should have been cut. The Bonzo should have been in it from the beginning. But then there's that thing that the Beatles wouldn't necessarily be top dogs. I can imagine Stanchel certainly, and probably a lot of the others, would have run rings around them in thinking of spontaneous and funny things to say. This is how much the film I have difficulty concentrating on. I put a note, they should have gone to the seaside. And then later on, a second watching, I put, hang on, they did. <laughs> but we don't get that. We see them on the beach, but it's like, so fine. You're going on a mystery tour. Go to the seaside and we can see amusement arcades and all kinds of crazy stuff on the front and stuffing yourself with candy floss. I forgot the British word for it just then. Well, you mentioned earlier on about how it needs something. And I was thinking as you were saying that about you hear these instances of when like scriptwriters like Clement and Lafrenet are brought in to add something, add some umph. Like they were, I think, brought in to, to add some bits and pieces to Never Say Never Again, for example. And you, you get the impression that this needs Barney Cryer and, and John Junkin and what have you coming in and just getting hold of the script and, and getting something funny in it, giving it a, a once-over. There's just a bit where they have like all this whittling on the Mellotron and we just look at the people on the bus and it's way too early in the film to be doing that. It's way too early to get, oh, let's just get a little bit sleepy. It's that sleepy part of the coach trip. No, I think we've only had one song at that point or we might have had, maybe that just comes straight after Fool on the Hill. I can't remember what order the scenes come in. Oh, there's one really desperate bit when we go to the four or five magicians in their lab. I mean, their lab looks terrible. Oh, God, I've forgotten <laughs> about that. Grim. But there's that bit where Ringo just comes and goes, where's the boss? Where's the boss? And you can see the panic in him. It's like, I've got to do something funny, so I'll just keep saying, where's the boss in a silly voice? As a piece of entertainment, I would say that every one of the Children's Film Foundation films that we watched, even Pop Pirates, was more entertaining than this. I still have this enormous affection for it, though, because I like where they're coming from. It's not rebellious. And one of the reasons it's not rebellious is because... For all that I say, well, John was more middle class than the others. They're not all that middle class. I mean, 
middle class in Liverpool is peasantry elsewhere. And rebellion is something that the middle classes can afford. And also Paul was the driving force. And Paul was always the most diplomatic, the most uh, family friendly of the Beatles. But I mean, even I know the song Revolution got John in some trouble with the scene. But even then he knew he's not criticising the idea of rebellion, but he's seeing some of the people who are talking and some of the people who are proposing some form of communist revolution. And he's looking, it's like, yeah, but you, you have enough time to go to a march and you don't actually have to be back at your desk to earn enough money to pay the rent. Tyler, have you ever heard any of the Beatles Christmas records? Uh, yes, not for a long time, though, but many, many years ago. I wish Magical Mystery Tour was as funny as their 1967 Christmas record. Meh. Oh, it's full of great lines. Meh. <laughs> you didn't like it? No, that, uh, yeah, no. But you you got to love the line, Mrs. G. Evans of Solihull was gradually injured. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, that's good, yeah. <laughs> She's asked for all the people in hospital plenty of jam jars by the ravelers. <laughs> For all that we've been saying, though, they needed a gag man, they needed a script writer. The Beatles could come up with some good gags. I mean, I quite like that line where the eyes of man have never set foot. It's very Goonshaw. Maybe it's nicked from the Goonshaw. But it's also easy to imagine that John Lennon came up with that himself. I think every time I've said this on the podcast, it's ended up being edited out. So I will say it again now with a note to myself not to edit it. It's out. <laughs> Part of the idea we're going for when we jaffer the Beatles, the Pythons are not the Beatles of comedy. The Beatles are the goons of music. And it's part of the reason I think they could get so far into the heart of the British mainstream is that in some ways they were recognisable from a different tradition. There'd been British rock and roll, but it was people trying to be Elvis. And this is rock and roll that's also partially recognisably got a little bit of the crazy gang in its DNA. For the two of you, were there any belly laughs? Was there anything bigger than a titter in terms of No, what, I would have written it down if... Gary? There's a little bit of the spats effect here. So I could sort of... I wasn't bored stupid by it, put it that way. So I was, I was interested just to see where it went and... Just enjoy the visuals, enjoy the, the songs and what have you. So from that point of view, it was it was fine. It was just, you know, it was just there. But no, I wouldn't I wouldn't say that I got any laughs from it. Because I I go back to what I was saying before. They're not actors, they're not comic actors. And I've got to be honest, I know I've said this on the podcast before, and I know it's a slightly sacrilegious thing to say around these parts where I am, but I, I never really got Ivor Cutler, to be honest. I know that he's really sort of revered by a lot of people, but just for whatever reason, he just doesn't do it for me. So I don't really get the benefit from, from himself being in it either. Was he a regular on late night lineup, or was it had he been on once and the Beatles had seen him? Do you know? I don't know, no. No, Ringo in the Arena documentary just mentions his great records. What about the casting of Jesse Robbins? What did you think of her? Yeah, I, I didn't really. Yeah, I mean, I didn't really. I didn't really think. I'm, I'm Ringo sort of. Everyone is anti-arguing. That's a real drag. Who would you have recast? Who would you have had as his auntie? Ava Sponge. Peggy Mount. Hmm. Yes. Peggy Mount. Yeah. Yes. 
that's the other thing. It starts with Ringo and his auntie are arguing, but there's never that scene where Ringo and his auntie have made peace. No, this film starts out with the younger generation is arguing with the older generation. And it's presented as not a good thing. But we never have that bit at the end where, okay, I think there's a bit, I can't remember now if it's an outtake or not, where Ringo drunkenly says, yeah, you're one of the best. It's, <laughs> but it's not exactly giving us closure. <laughs> so I just want to bring up something that I found out way too late for last week's podcast on Jafferville. Apparently, children are growing up again with animated fun based around Beatles songs. There's a show on Netflix called Beat Bugs, and everyone is based around a Beatles song. And yes, there is an episode based on Tomorrow Never Knows. Mm. Is it for preschoolers? Yes. Yeah, it's, it's, I would say it was four to seven. I think that was the thing. And I found out partially because my nieces were here at the weekend and they seemed to know a heck of a lot of Beatles songs. So that prophecy's coming true. It wasn't, it wasn't a prophecy, but that line in The Simpsons is coming true when, for some reason, Barton Milhouse find out Flanders has a massive collection of Beatles memorabilia. And Milhouse says, who are the Beatles? And Bart says, they wrote all the songs on Maggie's Baby Records. <laughs> <laughs> Gary, would you, would you uh, if... Someone like yourself had never really been into the Beatles. Would you recommend this as the, the starting point? I, I thought you were just going to ask, would you recommend this? But I, I mean, <laughs> even then I'd be in two minds, but as a starting point, definitely not. No. I mean, I, I would say if you're going to watch a Beatles film, then make it Hard Day's Night. Because the thing is that that's a film. That's a film with the Beatles in a film with a plot and a narrative and so on. Whereas... Even by help, it's starting to sort of creep in this relaxed attitude to the, the structure of the film making a great deal of sense. And then we end up with Magical Mystery Tour. And then in a way, I suppose, Yellow Submarine, Yellow Submarine doesn't really draw comparison with the others because it's unique as far as Beatles films are concerned. So it's a piece of animation. Stop! Whoa, 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 whoa. I know we're going to talk about we'll it. get to Yellow Submarine. I know, I know, I know, I know. But no, so yeah, so I'd say, yeah, if you're going to watch a Beatles film and you've never seen one before, then Hard Day's Night, I guess. You didn't care much for Help, did you? My problem with Help was that there didn't seem to be a great deal of characterization. The stereotypes are, you know, somewhat sort of uncomfortable and looking at it now. And also, I do find it difficult to shake off. It's part of the reason why I've never really warmed to... John Lennon. There's, there's just something about him that, that I, I don't particularly take to. There's something about his personality I, I, I just I don't like. And I, I get the impression, even in Help, for example, that he seems to be just sort of coasting through it. And I know what you're saying about they're all stoned while they're, while they're making it and so on. But yeah, I mean, it comes across even in Magical Mystery Tour that Ringo is... Ringo comes across to me as probably the most likable of the group. And I think probably Paul McCartney would probably be the person who was the most professionally likable. So if you met him at an engagement or what have you, he'd say all the right things and you know that he's never going to cause a scene or anything like that. Whereas I suspect that Ringo would be the probably the most fun to actually, you know, just be chatting to and what have you. George Harrison, I get the impression that he's sort of, he's, he's perfectly pleasant, but he's sort of got his head somewhere else into whatever it is he's into that particular you know month or year or whatever it is 
Whereas Lennon, I don't know, there's, there's just something about his overall sort of demeanour and his way of interacting with other people and, and what have you that I, I get the impression that he doesn't seem to have a particularly good impression of, of other people. I, I don't know, I mean... Lennon was always was cruel. He could be very cruel. Lennon on his own, as a songwriter, was, was good up to a point, but he needed the softer edge of McCartney. And likewise, McCartney, on his own needed the sort of the grit, if you like, of Lennon. So the two of them together complemented each other very well. That's something we didn't really talk about with this film, and we don't really have to do a great deal of examination. How the Beatles' individual personalities come across in Magical Mystery Tour, they don't. Well, Ringo's the actor, isn't he? He gets the lion's share of the acting duties. And George, as we said, George, you really only hear George when he's singing Blue Jay Way. Lennon's slightly disengaged although he seems to be enjoying himself as well but McCartney is being the showman isn't he um but, but he's not a very good actor yeah Richard Lester said that the problem with Paul was that he tried a bit too hard it was nice to hear you say actually till on when we're talking about the, the Beatles cartoons the other week when you said about how Ringo was actually the, the most well disposed towards the cartoon itself and yeah I mean obviously Ringo starts to become like sort of front and center and help as it is. And so, yeah, I suppose it makes sense that also he's the principal sort of actor in this. I'm interested to see The Magic Christian because I'm, I'm thinking, okay, we're talking here about wouldn't be interested in if Peter Sellers was involved in this and also about how Ringo seems to be the most comfortable delivering lines and so on. So I'm really interested to see how this is going to come out when these two worlds collide. So next week, Gary. Well, we were saying earlier on about how this film needed a bit of an injection of faces, gummy hackers and what have you. And next week we're going to be talking about a film which has got lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of familiar faces. Pretty much every familiar face of the 1960s, except for the Beatles. We're going to be talking about a film which has sort of fallen off the, the radar until recently when it's been getting an airing on Talking Pictures TV in the UK. And that is Michael Benteen's 1966 film The Sandwich Man. So in the meantime, Tyler, if people want to hear more from yourself, where can they follow you? Are you on the old Twitter machine yourself? I am um, at LapsedCat. And in the meantime, you can find all of the previous editions of Jaffa Cakes for Proust and the wee Jaffa Vils that we've done. And of course, all the previous episodes of the Sitcom Club. If there are no episodes, Which is coming back next year. Actually, it's coming back this year, isn't it? Oh yeah, we've got one more to do for this year, but we're doing a proper run of them next year for eight weeks. No, stay tuned because we're going to be spending Christmas with ITV and the results are entirely predictable. But in the meantime, <laughs> you can follow us at Jaffa's for Proust or just search Jaffa Cakes for Proust on Facebook and you can find all manner of other podcasts as well. Lots and lots of them, dozens of them, I think hundreds of episodes actually, on podnose.com. So until we reconvene, thank you very much indeed, Tyler, for joining us today. Thank you again. If we don't speak to yourself before end of the year then have a very merry Christmas and to you both and till we will be back next week with another Jaffa Cakes for Proust bye bye